Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I preached at uh, Redeemer Nixa last week, and when I walked in, one of the elders said, How was your Easter? And I said, At least I got out of prison. <laughs> and uh, I say that because on Holy Week I was teaching in Angola prison down in uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary. In that uh, time of teaching through the book of Galatians, I casually mentioned that uh, I had written a sermon, at least two sermons for each chapter in the book of Galatians, and when I looked and checked back, I'd probably written about 15 or 20 more on Galatians at some point in my ministry. And uh, I said that was kind of easy because one habit I developed from the very first day I became a pastor was I have written a sermon every week whether I have preached or not. It's just a rhythm that I go through. And one of the inmates said, so Doc, what are you going to be, uh, what's your next sermon series all about? And I said, well, it's going to be about First John. And I hadn't given any thought at all that last Sunday's epistle lesson was from First John chapter 1, or that today was chapter 2. In fact, I said, I've got all the messages done, the truth about forgiveness. That was last week, and today we'll, we shall be like him. And next week, sense and nonsense about love. Setting the standards in the last message, Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, having said that, let's take a look at this very first slide here. Some of you will recognize uh, the Beatles, George Harrison. Uh, shortly, uh, he was asked at one point about his spiritual journey, and the question was probably apt because it was Harrison who actually introduced the Beatles to Eastern religion back uh, early on in the 60s, and he actually wrote a uh, song called My Sweet Lord, which a lot of people really liked and sang along. The very first time I ever heard it, I sang along until I got to that last phrase, Lord, hallelujah, my Lord, Hare Krishna. And I suddenly realized I wasn't going to sing that song anymore. But at the end of his life, Harrison was still searching. He was continuing to investigate spirituality. And towards the end of his life, he had one more thing to say, and it's this, everything else in life can wait, but the search for God cannot wait. Now, Harrison was um, correct in his assessment. We were made to know God, and nothing is more important than filling that little God-shaped vacuum that's in each and every one of us. I mean, nothing that the world is going to show us can take the place of knowing the God who made you. See, if you live to be 20 or 30 or 40 or, you know, whatever age you live to, and you don't know God, it doesn't really matter uh, what else you have done with your life. If you don't know God, you've missed the very reason why you were created. And if you miss out on knowing God, you have missed the central point of this universe. See, compared to knowing the one who made you, everything else is... Well, as somebody told me one time, it's kind of nibbling around the edges. See, we are incurably religious by nature. Now, while a lot of people don't go to church these days, most of those same people would say they are spiritual people. In other words, they're still looking for something to fill that spot in their heart. And that's why every society, no matter how primitive that society is, has some concept of a higher power. It has some vision of reality that goes beyond this world. See, on one level, that explains why science has not eradicated religion. 
I mean, science can never do that because technology, no matter what achievements we have, can meet the deepest need of the human heart. And yet we still have millions of people, maybe even some of you, who read your horoscope every day just to check it out and see whether God is right. And this is why some people go to palm readers and why they spend a lot of money watching or calling psychic hotlines. And the reason for that is people are still very hungry for spiritual truth. And if they can't find it by normal means, they're going to reach out and try to find it anywhere that they can in order to get an answer. There's something in us that drives us to seek an ultimate meaning outside ourselves, but that something was put inside of us by God. So I ask you this question, friends. Can anyone legitimately claim to know God? Or is it all just some sort of empty talk and foolish thinking? Well, the text I'm going to deal with this morning is just really the first three verses of 1 John chapter 3, but it reveals the truth about the children of God. It explains why this world so often doesn't recognize us. And if you'd like to know what's ahead for those people who know God, keep on listening. If you're not really interested in what happens to people who know God, you can, I guess, take about a 15-minute nap. But if you are interested, this message may be for you. Here's my very first point. It has to do with what we are. In verse 1, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what? Children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now, that little phrase that starts at the beginning, how great, uh, translates a Greek word that means from what country? From what country? It's a question and an exclamation that's kind of all rolled together and it's kind of like, what country did this kind of love come from? Well, the answer to that question is um, obviously not here on earth. Uh, that's because some of us have forgotten who we were before God ever saved us. In fact, you can go back and read Romans 5. I suggest go back and read that later today. And it uses four different words to describe our spiritual condition apart from God. It says we're powerless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and we're enemies of God. That's pretty hard stuff. But see, the good news is we, even though we were powerless to change, Jesus still loved us. Although we were ungodly, Jesus still loved us. And while we were still sinners, Jesus still loved us. And while we were God's enemies, Jesus came to reconcile us back to his Father. Ephesians chapter 2, you can read that as well later today. You've got nothing else to do anyway but study your scriptures, right? Woo, I've never heard such deafening silence in my life. Well, I'm going to tell you what it said then. It says you're dead in your sins. So dead that you can't do a single thing to help yourself. We aren't sort of dead or mostly dead or partly dead or not quite dead. We are as dead as dead can be apart from God. See, it's our total helplessness that makes the love of God so out of this world, so unearthly. In this world, our love tends to be conditional. But God's love is always I love you despite the way you are. I love you even though you don't want anything to do with me. I, I love you even when you deliberately break my commandments and pretend I don't even exist. I love you even after you thumbed your nose at me and used my name to curse someone else. 
If I boiled the gospel down to a few phrases, I would just say the gospel simply is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And to prove it, God sent his son to die on a bloody Roman cross for you. So again, I'd ask the question, what sort of world did that love come from? Well, it didn't come from Springfield, Missouri, or Nixon, or Branson, anywhere else. It didn't come from this world. There's no quality in you that caused God to save you. It was a pure, sovereign love that reached out and took you in. And God desires that all of, even his enemies, become his children. And when John says that we are called, he uses the word that actually means officially designated. You have been officially, officially designated as a child of God. Because that's exactly what you and I are. Called by whom? You're called by God. And since God is God, if he calls us his children, then guess what? That's what we are. Period. End of discussion. See, our text tells us that we have a Father in heaven whose name we bear. I am his true son. You are his true sons and daughters. We bear his image. And by divine grace, we have been adopted into God's family. And by the miracle of new birth, we have been born again. And and when I think about that, it's kind of like a double miracle that's done in us. We are adopted into God's family. And we're also born into God's family. You and I are sons and daughters of the living God. But not everybody believes that truth about us. Some people think we're bragging when we say that we're sons of God or daughters of God. or They, they think we're foolish. But John explains this strange incomprehension. He said the reason the world does not know us is what? It doesn't know God. Now, think back at Christmas. It's not been that long ago. At Christmas, we were reminded that the world did not know who Jesus was. Only the wise men, only the shepherds marked his birth. Herod tried to kill him. The religious leaders completely ignored him. When he was born, everybody thought he was just an ordinary little Jewish baby boy. Growing up, I'm sure all the neighbors just kind of assumed that he was the son of Joseph and of Mary. Most people thought of him as a great teacher or maybe some sort of a political leader that would lead them to overthrow Rome someday. His opponents said that he only did miracles through the power of the devil. During the last week of his life, religious leaders tried to kill him. Pilate was confused by Jesus. Pilate was curious about Jesus. He was even drawn to Jesus, but he couldn't understand him. And at the cross, people shouted, If you are the king... Come on down, and then we'll believe. Do you remember what happened when he died, when he said, Tetelestai, when he said, It is finished? There was a centurion standing there at the foot of the cross who said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, you've probably heard it said, Seeing is believing, but I want to reverse that and say, Believing is seeing. See, the centurion believed, and therefore he could see. The shepherds believed, and therefore they could see. Those who believe are given the gift of spiritual sight to see Jesus for who he really is. Everybody else just stumbles around in darkness. See, the world didn't know Jesus 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't know his followers now. 
You know, we're here in a nice big holy huddle here this morning, fellow believers. But you know, when the rest of the world looks at us and looks at many people who attend church on Sunday, all they see is a nice group of, quote, religious people. We're gathered on a Sunday morning, we are fairly well-dressed, we're pretty good-looking, we're normally well-groomed, and we sing these sweet religious songs, but other people see us as a bunch of fanatics who believe things that can't possibly be true. But either way, you should not be alarmed or bothered. The world was wrong about Jesus, so guess what? They're going to be wrong about you and me as well. You see, the real problem here is Jesus. I mean, just consider this for a moment. If you took Jesus out of the equation, it would be true then that Christians and Muslims and Jews all worship the same God. But you can't take Jesus out of the equation, can you? Jesus here is the sticking point to the whole thing. Uh, and, And that's why they don't want us to pray in his name at public gatherings. A number of years ago, when I was asked to pray at the Illinois State Capitol, I got a little guide that basically told me not to pray in Jesus' name, and I politely told them, no, thank you, because where I go, Jesus goes. See, they don't want us to use that name because they, well, they want to say that we're all worshiping the same God, that it really doesn't make any difference. But as far as we are concerned, friends, I hope as far as we are concerned, Jesus is God. We don't owe anybody any favors whatsoever to deny that or downplay that truth. Uh, and to, to this world, this is politically incorrect heresy that I'm talking about today. It's divisive and it's exclusionary to which we ought to respond, so, so what? Your point is what? This is what we believe. So we can't expect the world to understand that or accept it, but it's true nonetheless. Uh, You know, the world didn't recognize Jesus 2,000 years ago. It doesn't recognize him today yet, and it doesn't recognize those of us who follow him. But the world's ignorance cannot cancel the reality of who we are. We are children of God, whether the world knows it or not. Now, here's the second point. It's what we'll be. Verse 2 says, but friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, here in this sentence, in the Greek, now comes early in the sentence to emphasize its importance. John wants us to know that we are children of God right now, today. At this very moment. Right now, we are the children of God. Today, we are forgiven. In this moment, we are redeemed. Our justification has been completely accomplished. And we are at present possessors of eternal life. Um, Therefore, we do not wake up in the morning and kind of wonder, Am I a child of God today or not? Well, I would say, friends, why wonder about something that's already settled in heaven? If we are now children of God, then the only question left to us is, will we believe what God has said? Now, have you ever wondered about heaven, though? Because there are a lot of things here. John points out there are many things about the future, even as children of God, that we don't yet know. And for all that we know about heaven, there's a lot we don't know. Think about questions you've asked about heaven. Have you ever thought about... uh, 
what other believers are doing in heaven right now? I mean, sometimes I hear well-meaning Christ followers say something like this. Well, I'm sure she's playing the piano up in heaven. Well, I bet old Uncle Joe, he's fishing with St. Peter. Well, I bet that couple, they're probably playing golf today with uh, Paul and some of the other apostles. You know, there are a lot of other questions. Can the saints up in heaven actually see what's going on at Redeemer in Springfield this morning? Can they hear us while we talk? Can they li- are they listening to today's sermon here or in Nixa or elsewhere? Do they cheer us on as we try to finish the race called life? Well, friends, the truth is we really don't know much about the glorified children of God. And no doubt it's probably because we don't really have the capacity to fully understand it. I'm going to give you a little proof of that. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talked about a man who had been caught up into heaven. Now he was talking about himself, taken up into heaven. And he said he saw things that were not lawful for a human to utter. In other words, what he was saying is, it's it's totally impossible for me to convey, using words, the wonder I had seen in heaven. So we really only know one thing for certain. When we die, we will be with Jesus forever. We know that. That was the promise made to the dying thief. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And if we're with Jesus, guess what? All the rest is just details. John, however, says in contrast, uh, in contrast with our limited knowledge about the future, there are still three things we can know for certain. You see these are on the screen. Here's one of them. We know that Jesus is going to come back again. I don't know how many of you read the prophecy that the rapture is going to take place this week, by the way, on the 23rd of April. Now, every time I read garbage, I shouldn't use that word, nonsense like that, I always think to myself, Who does that person think he is? Because Jesus himself said, no one knows, not even me, when God's going to come back. But we know he's going to come back. The text says, when he appears. Not if, not when. Jesus said he was coming back. You can take that to the bank, that one day the Son of God will come back to restore his kingdom. So I say, let the scoffers scoff and the doubters doubt. Children of God have no doubts whatsoever. Through 20, those 20 centuries have come and gone, we kind of look with eager eyes. If we pray the Lord's Prayer later, we're going to pray, Thy kingdom come. And I've said this before, I often pray that it would come in the middle of my sermon so I don't have to finish it. <laughs> I'm ready. We know. That's what John says. As if it were a fact just as certain as the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. A promise as certain as the unchanging laws of nature. Here's the second thing we know. We know that we will see him as he is. Hope you notice those last three words. As he is. Not as he was. Not as a little child, little baby laying in a manger. Not as some traveling teacher walking the dusty roads of of Galilee and Judea. Not even as the miracle worker who healed people or raised the dead. We're not going to see him as he was, hanging on the cross, all beaten and bruised and bloody, more dead than alive. Nor will we behold him as somebody wrapped in a bunch of linen cloth, stuck away in a tomb. 
When we see Jesus again, friends, we are going to see him risen. We're going to see him ascended. We're going to see him victorious. We're going to see the lamb who's also a lion. We're going to see the king of kings. We're going to see the Lord of lords. Not a picture of Jesus. Not some sort of computer-generated hologram of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus himself. And we're going to see him not from a thousand miles away or some image that's flashed up on some giant interstellar screen. We're going to see him personally, face to face. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then what? Then we are going to see face to face. Here's the third thing. When we see him, guess what? We're going to become like him. We're going to be him. Be him. Ponder that. Just think about that for a moment. We will be like Jesus. See, in this life, we, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus little by little, day by day, step by step by the Holy Spirit. But the work is so slow, and it is so, the progress is so difficult, it often seems that we go backwards instead of forwards. I mean, for a lot of us, if your Christian life is anything like mine, sometimes I think I take five steps forward, and then I take five steps to the left, and then I take 12 steps to the rear, and then I spin myself around three or four times. <sighs> like I tell you, there's a better day coming. And a better day coming for all the saints of God when the trials of this life are going to be put behind us. See, when you and I see Jesus face to face, the very sight of of the Son of God will transform us from the inside out. We will be like Him, for we will see Him exactly as He is. His holiness will make us holy through and through. We will grow more in a glance from Jesus than some pastors can pick up in 70-some years of studying the Word. All I'm saying, friends, is better days are coming. So let this thought encourage you in your long journey home. God's determined to make you like Jesus. Because you're his child, you will one be, be just like his son. And that family resemblance, which today is kind of faint, as to sometimes be almost invisible, will in that joyful day be so clear that no one in the entire universe could miss it. I mean, just think about it for a moment. All the sin and all the inner turmoil... All the memories that keep us chained to the past. In one shining moment, that burden will be lifted off of us and the chains are broken and we will be set free. I mean, lust, gone forever. Anger and bitterness, forever banished. Pride, removed. Greed, rejected by love. Sorrow gives way to complete joy. Hurtful memories are healed. Free, foul speech gives way to continuous praise of God. Evil habits are extinguished. Lying lips now speak the truth. I mean, all of that we wanted, all of that we dreamed but could never attain, the people we knew we could be and should be in one shining moment when we see Jesus, it all comes true for us. You know, God's got some pretty big dreams for us, doesn't he? He knows what he is about to do for us. I can almost imagine him saying to us, friends, if you only knew what I plan to do for you someday. 
I mean, 1 John 3, 2 says, it's a wonderful reminder that God is not done with us yet. Here's my last point. What should be? What we should be. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if we believe that someday we're going to be like Jesus, we should live like him right now. Keep the promise in view, then live up to it. One day we're going to be perfected, but in this life now, we continue to live that sanctified life to purify ourselves. So you might ask yourself, how am I going to purify myself? Well, if you happen to hear the sermon last Sunday, you heard something from 1 John 1, verse 9. Actually, verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will cleanse all of our unrighteousness. He will purify us. So we purify ourselves by using the God-appointed means of purification, which we've already done today. It's called confession, repentance, and then even absolution. Confession says, I was walking down the wrong road. Repentance says, by God's grace, though, I'm going to head in a totally different direction. Friends, when we take sin seriously, when we don't make excuses, when we stop pretending, when we stop blaming other people or blaming our circumstances, but when we cry out to God for mercy and grace, then we are forgiven and we are cleansed. We are cleansed. Now, there's a little key phrase in verse 3 also that we really don't want to miss. Maybe it's not in verse 3. It's in another. Our hope is always in Him. It is in there, in Him. We have hope in Jesus and not in ourselves. It's the positive hope of seeing Jesus someday that gives us what we need here and now. And finally, I want to point out a word that was mentioned five times in verse 2. I kind of skipped by it before. I think I got all five of them listed up here for you. We are the children of God. What we will be, go on to the next screen, what we will be has not yet been made known. We know when we see Him, we shall be like Him. We, 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 we. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, a little pig that ran all the way home. See, the first we here assures us of our position in God's family. The last we reveals our ultimate destiny. We're going to be exactly like Him. Not, I shall be like Him, although that's true to some extent, and not, you will be like Him, although that's true, but we, we, all the brothers and sisters in the family of God, all the saints down through the ages, in the end, will all march together, side by side, joining hearts, joining hands, raising voices in this thunderous song of praise as we enter that celestial city. Now today, we look at ourselves, whether we're Redeemer, Lutheran, and Springfield, or Nixon, sometimes we can seem to be a pretty ragtag and disorganized group of people. It seems that way because, in truth, that's the way it really is, this side of heaven. But God has ordained that all of his children will make it safely home. Not one of God's lambs will be lost, Scripture says. All the sheep will find their way back to the Good Shepherd. And I think what a wonderful day that will be. And that day is coming a lot sooner than we think. We're not there yet. And no one knows how much longer we need to wait. But whether sooner or later we know that Jesus is coming again. It's that hope that sustains us in our journey toward heaven. 
When Jesus comes, we will be like him, and we will see him as he really is. May God bless us on the continuation of our journey. Amen. Our worship continues as we gather together our tithes and our offerings. Thank you. 